This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Well, okay, there we are. Hey guys, um, I'm Jeff Heiser, one of the pastors here at Trinity. I want to welcome you guys, especially if you're visiting. You know, um, my wife and I just had uh, our second child about three weeks ago. And this church has cared for us really, really, really well. We've had meals almost every night, um, except for when our parents were in town. So this church, I mean, if, if you are visiting this church, know that this is a church. I don't know if there's a greater compliment that you could give a church is that they care for each other. And this church has cared for my, for my wife and I. And uh, I just, we just want to say thank you guys. It has meant the world to us. And you should make this church your home because you can have that same experience. So... Um, today we are going to be in Revelation chapter 21 as we continue our Advent series here. We're in the Advent series, uh, uh, the Advent season here at Trinity. It's something we set apart to celebrate, as you'll see. We have our wreath here. We do particular readings, the, um, these sorts of things. You can even see it on the front of our bulletin. We try and um, get in the Christmas season. And Advent is an old word that we don't use much anymore, but it means coming. And the Advent season is this time of year where we, we celebrate, we remember the coming of Christ, the coming of God to be one of us, to be among us. And when I was a kid, I don't know about you guys, like the, the Christmas season was just like soaked in adrenaline. Like I was just pumped. I mean, the entire month, I'm just longing for, oh, it's coming. I'm counting off the days. December is here. Christmas is around the corner. And I have these very distinct memories of, like, um, laying in my bunk bed and, and just not being able to sleep at all the night before Christmas because I was, like, too wound up. Like, I could not calm down enough to go to sleep. And I just was counting down those slow minutes until 6 o'clock came when my parents said I could come out of bed and get in the living room and see the tree and all the presents. And, like, I just, I couldn't sleep a wink the night before. Now, um, I'm an adult now. And I sleep great on Christmas Eve. I have no issues um, sleeping on Christmas Eve anymore. I don't spend my life waiting for Christmas to come or my birthday to come. I, but I do think that we as adults, we wait for things that are a lot more serious and painful than Christmas presents. And the things that we wait for, they're not guaranteed to come once a year, right? We wait for really difficult things as adult life gets much more serious. I'm not talking about like waiting for the toaster to pop. I'm talking about like you're waiting, you're waiting for marriage as the years tick away, or, or you're waiting for peace within your marriage as the years tick away. Or how about waiting for like a, a breakthrough in your, just this career that seems to be sucking the life, the purpose, the joy out of you. What about when you're waiting for those like serious, serious things? How in the world do, are we supposed to wait for those sort of things? And, and our, our world is just incredibly impatient. I mean, I, I think, like, I can't even sit at a, I can't even wait for a stoplight without pulling out my phone. 
Like, I, I need to distract myself from those 30 seconds, you know, where I'm waiting. Because even that little bit of sitting there, I can't take it. How much more that soul draining waiting, that waiting of like, when will enough time pass that I can go to a family dinner, a family Christmas, and not be so awkward and explosive and painful? Like, what in the world do we do when we experience that kind of waiting? And you and I know, um, because at some level we've all experienced this, that waiting is its own particular form of suffering. It's a little bit, it's different than just, than like tragedy. Tragedy has its unique pain, but waiting is the slow, long burn that leaves us over the years a little bit cynical, a little bit apathetic, a little bit um, angry, Right? Now, think about the book of Revelation. If you know it, um, you know that it's probably um, one of the most intimidating books of the Bible. Um, Lots of visions, lots of cryptic things. We need lots of explanation. Not really sure what's going on there. And when we read the book of Revelation, we can be tempted to forget. We can get caught up in all these visions and things, and we can be tempted to forget that Revelation was written to real people in the real past who are struggling with real things. It's written to real churches that needed to be encouraged. And if you remember um, from the book of Acts, you you have um, this scene where Jesus has risen from the dead, And the disciples are all gathered around him. He encourages them. And then he's lifted up into heaven. And and the disciples are just kind of standing there looking at at the sky. And an angel appears to them and says, listen, Jesus, why are you standing there? (laughs) The way that Jesus left, he will come back the same way. And when he comes, he's going to come in power and glory and authority and bring his kingdom to bear for real finally. And if you think about that first generation of Christians, they think that that is going to happen within their lifetime. And so now you're looking at the book, you're reading the book of Revelation, and it's written about 50 to 60 years after Jesus ascended up into heaven. 50 or 60 years, and Jesus still had not come. Most of that first generation was now dead. All of the apostles, except for John, who, had, who wrote Revelation, were dead, and still Jesus had not come. They'd been persecuted. He had not come. Jerusalem had been completely destroyed. The church scattered, and still Jesus had not come. What are we doing here? And their waiting, as they waited and the years ticked away, it had turned to doubt, to apathy, to what um, John calls in um, the first couple chapters of Revelation, lukewarmness. They had lost their first love. You, if you read those chapters, you realize that the churches are struggling to remain faithful as they continue to wait, and nothing happens. Now, now it's been 2,000 years. You know, um, Bertrand Russell, famous uh, mathematician, atheist, um, he said, look, it's been, this was you know, 100 years ago, he said, look, it's been 1,900 years. He's not coming back, as if to say, the fact that you're still, you still continue to believe what you believe, even though you continue to wait, it's absurd. What are you doing? 
give up. It's not going to happen. And listen, we're in this Advent season, and as Christians, the Advent season should be a little bit painful for us. What? Christmas should be painful? Yes. (laughs) Because although we're celebrating that God came to earth to live and to die and to be one of us and to die for us, right? Like the great miracle of history has happened, and yet we know that he's coming back and he hasn't yet. There is still pain in this world. There is still fighting with our spouses. There's still yelling at our kids. There's still war and political unrest and nightmare. It's just addictions, alcoholism. There's still intense pain in this world. And in the Advent season, we say, we're still waiting. We are still waiting. And what the Apostle John wants to offer you and I as we wait, He wants to offer us hope and hope, hope that what began at the first advent 2,000 years ago when that baby was born in a manger, what started there will be completed in the second advent when Christ comes again at the end of time. And what we're going to look at today is what happens. It's a vision of the future that the Lord gives the Apostle John. And he believes that, and the Apostle John thinks that if, if, like if we can get this God's eye view of history, then it will really encourage us to, to wait in the pain of waiting. It will give us hope and perseverance. Our passage um, starts with a vision of the new heaven and the new earth. And then John hears the voice of God himself speaking to him. And so those are kind of, kind of be our two points after we read our text. The, the vision, what John sees, and then the voice, what John hears. And so um, if you would, please stand with me out of reverence to God's word. And we're going to read from Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. Here now the reading of God's word. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death." This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will abide forever. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. Okay. What's the vision that John sees? I don't know. Um, this might just be me or it might just be the, the circles that I 
I don't know, running or something. But I've seen over the last few years this trend on social media whenever there's um, a big tragedy, when there's ever, like a time of national grieving for something or in, even international grieving and something big and painful happens in the world. A lot of times I'll see Christians um, post, like when they, as they send out you know, their condolences uh, over social media, they'll post and they'll say, and, and they'll close their post with the words, Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. And what we're seeing today in our passage is what really happens when Jesus comes. Like what happens when those words become true? And I don't know, I've, for many years of my life, I could never say those words seriously. Because I think that... Um, I certainly had, and I think a lot of us have, kind of a, a, a dry and maybe cartoonish vision of what heaven is like. You know, we, I remember thinking like, okay, um, I know that there's lots of gold, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to be singing for forever. And I thought like, man, I just am not a good singer. Like, I just don't know if I want to, like, I, I believe that it'll be great. But I'm having a hard time picturing it, you know. But what John describes here is something that's very, very different. And I think if you can wrap, begin, we can't fully wrap our minds. If we can begin to wrap our minds around it, I think that we will be able to say, like, with conviction, come, Lord Jesus, I want you to come. I want this. And so we're going to look at this vision kind of, grasp what's going on here. And, I'm, and so what we're going to look at is first what's not in the vision, what's not there, what's not present, and what is there. So first, what's not there? If you look in verse 1, the very first thing that strikes you is that there is no sea. What's going on with why no sea? Uh, Cecilia and I went to Culebra a month and a half ago, maybe. We went to Flamenco Beach, one of the best beaches in the world, and it was breathtaking. And are you telling me that something like that won't exist in heaven? No. Because, and be, I've also been in the Caribbean during a massive major hurricane, right? And so I know the beauty of the sea, and I also know like the, how terrifying and terrible the sea can be. And what and throughout scripture what you see is the, the is that the sea is a metaphor for chaos and disorder and destruction and despair. And so the first um, verses of the Bible, there is chaos, there is the waters, and what does the Holy Spirit do? He brings order to the chaos. Jesus is in a boat with his disciples, and they're freaking out because there's a storm. And what does he do? He brings order to the chaos of the storm. And so what John is experiencing, he's not experiencing a world where there's no bodies of water. He's experiencing a world in which there is peace, where there's no destruction, no chaos, no despair. There's, that is completely wiped out in his vision of what is to come. There is no chaos. There's no natural disasters. There's no war. There's no famine. Those things are gone. There's no sea. Look at verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And I think this is the point where we realize that John is writing to real people. Because what he's addressing here are real problems. This isn't some like abstract whatever. These are things that we, that what that his readers, what, what we understand. These are the, the questions that we have about our lives. These are the things that we experience, the pain that we know. These people are really struggling. And what John is saying is he's giving them a vision of, of something much bigger. What he's saying is that their pain, the things that they're experiencing, these, the, even death itself, it's a symptom of something much bigger that's going on in all of creation, in the universe, in all of both heaven and earth. Your pain, our pain, is a symptom, symptom of a much bigger longing. What he's saying is that behind every temporal longing is a longing for the pain and chaos and despair and destruction to end. You know, every time you you feel the pain as you wait for um, a positive pregnancy test, that pain is part of a much bigger longing and a much more desperate waiting for the world to be made right again. It is a part of a much bigger disease, which is that the world is not right. And what John is saying is that your suffering is a symptom of of a disease for which Jesus Christ's return is the only cure, the only final cure. Cure in the new heavens and the new earth. The despair and pain of waiting, the chaos of life, the fact of death. They are not, it's not that they don't exist, that they are not allowed to exist. They cannot exist in this redeemed world in which Jesus Christ has full and total victory. These things are only part of the former things. They are no longer present in this new heaven and the new earth. Okay, that is what's not there. What is there? Well, there are a lot of new things. A new heaven and a new earth, he says in verse 1. In verse 2, he says, A holy city, a new Jerusalem coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The Bible Contrary to popular belief, doesn't teach that we will abandon this world, that God will light, you know, throw the, the match on the, on the gasoline and just burn the whole thing to smithereens. That's not what the Bible teaches. But instead, it teaches that when Christ comes back, he will renew and restore this world. That is not something that we can fully grasp. However, I think that we can taste it. I, my... One time, one summer, my um, when I was in school, my buddy and I were driving from Seattle to St. Louis um, in his little, you know, stick shift Honda Accord, and um, we drove across Washington and Idaho and Montana. And we get down to 
um, Yellowstone National Park. And right below Yellowstone National Park is another park called Grand Teton National Park. And it is home to the Teton Mountain Range, which is one of the most spectacular mountain ranges on Earth. It is unbelievable. And you're driving through Yellowstone, and there's, you're in a forest, like a pine forest, right? And you just you can't see much besides the road. And the road starts to wind, and you cross into Grand Teton National Park, and it's still that, that kind of forest that you're in. You can't really see much. And then you come around a turn, and the road on your right kind of falls away to a lake. And all of a sudden, you can, and behind the lake is the Teton Mountain Range. And so can you picture, like you're in this forest, can't see anything, and then all of a sudden, boom, in front of you is one of the most beautiful sights on, it is breathtaking. Like you have to stop and get out and just take in the astounding beauty of it all. And it all hits you at once. And I think in that moment, you're getting a little picture of heaven. Because what God is going to do is he's going to take the, the beauty of this world, this, the beauty of this world that is corrupted by sin, the fall, death. And he's going to remake it in all its glory and majesty. And I think that the most beautiful sights that we see on this earth are just a reflection of how stunning and awesome and breathtaking this world will be when God remakes it. And he says, this you will enjoy forever. When I began to grasp that, that was the first time I could ever say with, with honesty in my heart, Lord, I want you to come back because I want to taste some of that. That is, it is we can't fathom how incredible this will be. But it's not just a new creation that he's promised us. He's also promised us a new Jerusalem. And he's not talking about a city in the Middle East in Israel. What he's talking about is the people of God. It's the, the community of the saints. It is the, the gathering of all God's people together in a community, in a city. And so you have this renewed creation, then you have this city or this community that is full of renewed people, redeemed people. Perfected world, a perfected people that like governments are fixed, economics is restored to what it should be, relationships are healed. It's all, it's a whole culture that is many cultures that reflect um, a God, it reflect the, perfe the perfection of God Himself. And who is it that is dwelling? on this perfected world with, the, with this perfected people. There's a lot of new things going on in this vision. But there's also God. God himself is dwelling with his people. Look at verse 3. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. This is the goal of everything that God has been doing throughout all of Scripture and all of history. God is restoring his relationship with his people. Adam and Eve, they tasted this when they walked in the garden with God. 
God promised this to Adam, to Adam, yes, but to, to Abraham and Israel on Mount Sinai. They, they, they glimpsed it when the glory of God came and dwelt in the Holy of Holies in their camp among them. They glimpsed it. They, they saw just a reflection of what it would be like in the tabernacle. This is what we saw when Jesus Christ was born, when Emmanuel came, when God with us became a baby in a manger. It's what was made possible. The restoring of a relationship with God is what was made possible when Christ lived, died, and rose again from the dead. This is what God has been about for all of history. This is what God is doing. He's restoring his relationship with his people. And we've said this a lot, but it's worth saying again, that believing in Jesus, salvation itself is not an end. It is a means. Salvation is a means, a means to the end of knowing God, communing with him, being with him. And what John is seeing, he's actually seeing this unfold before his eyes. Our waiting is a symptom of a much bigger waiting are waiting to be with our God. And when Jesus returns, he will heal the symptoms and he will heal the disease. Your pain will be fully healed. Your heartache will be mended. Your death, like death will itself be undone. You're waiting. Everything will finally come true. Every remnant of the sin, of sin, of death is finally and totally, it is really, truly over. Done. And God dwells with his people, and he knows them, and they know him. And this is why the Advent season should be a little bit painful for Christians. It's, it's red, it should redemptively rub a little salt on our wounds. Because um, it reminds us that we're still in this, in this waiting period. We're still, and, and all the things that we wait for, that it should bring up some of them. Because it should remind us that they're all symptoms of this greater disease that will only be fixed when Christ comes again. And we, we can't run in, like from that pain into cynicism and despair and fatalism or unbelief. Or we, we should allow that pain to bring our hearts towards hope because we know, we believe that our pain is not final. And the more acute the pain, the, more, the greater the relief when it is finally ended. Our pain is not the end of the story. And just as we expectantly remember Christmas, as we expectantly wait to celebrate in a couple days that Jesus was born among us, so we expectantly wait for the new heavens and the new earth when God will dwell with us and all our pain will finally and truly be healed. Okay. In verse 4, John hears the voice of God. Sorry, verse 5. This is what he says. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Uh, My in-laws celebrated their 45th wedding anniversary this past week. And they sent out to like the family chat a picture 
of them that they had taken when they were in their um, in college in the 70s. And you know how pictures are from the 70s. They, they get a little bit faded. They start to turn a little bit orange. I don't know. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Um, and you... It's, it's not like you can't tell what the picture is or anything, but definitely it's lost some of its color, right? It's, it definitely doesn't feel like you're in the room, right? Those pictures, old pictures. And I think that God's promises sometimes feel very similar, where they start to lose some of their color. They stop, start being not quite so vivid. But not so with God. If you think about our passage last week from Matthew chapter 1, um, it quotes from Isaiah chapter 7. And that passage in Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah prophesied that, that a, that a child would be born who would be called Emmanuel. Isaiah prophesied that right around 735 B.C., 735 B.C. And so you fast forward 700 years. For, during those 700 years, what have they had? Crickets, nothing. And yet 700 years later, Caesar Augustus passes a degree that brings peace to the whole Roman world, and he starts to build roads, right, that just allows people to communicate and travel long distances. And when the time was perfect, what happens? Joseph has a dream. And in that dream, an angel tells him that prophecy that is 735 years in the making, 735 years of nothing, now's the time. Now is coming true. The child that is in your fiance's womb is the answer to that promise. I heard a pastor say this past week that God's promises are so vivid to him. They never fade. They never lose color. And what God promises us is that he is making all things new. It is done, he says. His promises are guaranteed. They're inevitable. They will happen. They are vivid to him. He does not forget. But there's also this warning in this text. And what John hears is he hears this warning saying, but listen, these aren't guaranteed for everybody. Look at verse 7 and 8. Um, the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And if you're, look, if you're anything like me, you're looking at this list and saying, uh-oh, <laughs> Um, yeah, I got a little bit of that cowardliness. I got a little bit of that faithlessness. I got a little bit of that sexual stuff. I got a little bit of that lying, that idolatry. That's describing me. But John is not condemning all who sin. He's not condemning all who still struggle with their sin nature, all who still have to fight against their sin, what John is saying is that there are those who place their hopes, their dreams, their lives, even their pain on God's promises. 
And they wait for, in longing for his second coming, knowing that it will finally, it, it, that is what will bring an end to the pain that they feel. And there are others, however, who place their hope in other things. And the gospel, the gospel is good news. It is free good news to all who will receive it. Like, that's why he says in verse 6 that the thirsty will drink from the water of life without payment. Emmanuel has come so that the kind of people that commit these kinds of sins might receive life, might receive a heritage as sons of God, sons and daughters of God. That is free because of what Christ has done. But there are those who do not want it, those who will not receive it, because they do not accept the free gift. And what John is calling us to is he's calling us to faithful waiting. He's not just saying like, hey, shape up. You better get these things crossed off the lift so you can get into heaven. No, he's painting a picture, a, a beautiful picture of what true life, true fulfillment, true pleasure will look like. And he's saying that, and, and God is saying, listen, this is the inheritance of my, my children. Come to me. I've come to you so that these things, so that you could have this inheritance. Your pain, your longing does not have to be the end of your story. And one day, my son will come again and we will be together forever. This is a free gift to you. I want to be with you. I am making all things new, he says. One day, this is a promise that one day this waiting will be over. One day, the waiting will truly be over. Um, I want to close um, here, looking again at verse 6, where it says, um, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And what we're seeing in this passage is a vision of the future. And we can kind of be tempted to say, yeah, but uh, what about today? What about today? Who's going to help me with today? You know, Jesus once met a Samaritan woman by a well and she had a checkered past. And she had been married five times. She was currently living with someone who wasn't her husband. And she had come to draw water from the well in the middle of the day because she didn't want the shame of having to interact with the other women who came early in the morning. And she meets Jesus there. And Jesus realizes right away that she might be thirsty, she might be parched, her palate might be dry, but what she needed is a whole lot more than her physical thirst quenched. She needed the, that the longings of her soul, she needed the, 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 like the, the desire for connection, the, someone to really love her, the, that, that deep longing and waiting for something that just had not happened for her. She needed that to be healed. And Jesus said to her, listen, you don't need water from this well. You need living water. 
You need the water that only I can give. He said, I am the spring of the water of life. It is me that can satisfy your thirst. Listen, you can today taste of the spring of the water of life. Listen, we are, we are thirsty. We are, we are um, parched. We are tired of waiting. And Jesus says, I alone am the spring of the water of life. You are longing for something more. You are waiting in the pain of this world. If that describes you, come to Jesus. He can comfort you. He can satisfy you. He can quench your thirst. Listen, you and I can have fellowship with God today because Forgiveness is freely offered to us in the gospel because Emmanuel was born, because the child was born who would save his people from his sins, not because we got to God, but because he came to us. God is with his people. He has come, and he's promised his people that he will come back. And it's that in that, and it is that in which we place our hope.